You're listening to the Sermon Podcast for the Peak Church, located in Apex, North Carolina. Our church is striving to welcome all who are feeling disconnected from God. And so our hope is that over the next several minutes, you will connect with the God that we are talking about, and you'll resonate deeply with the life that this God wants for you. We hope you enjoy. The scripture passage for today is from the book of Leviticus. Chapter 1, verses 1 through 9. Then the Lord called to Moses and said to him from the meeting ten, Speak to the Israelites and say to them, When any of you present present a livestock offering to the Lord, you can present it from either the herd or the flock. If the offering is an entirely burned offering from the herd, you must present a flawless male, bringing it to the meeting tent's entrance for its acceptance before the Lord. You must press your hand on the head of the entirely burned offering so that it will be accepted for you to make reconciliation for you. Then you will slaughter the bull before the Lord. Aaron's sons, the priest, will present the blood and toss it against every side of the altar at the meeting tent's entrance. Then the entirely burned offering will be skinned and cut up into pieces. The sons of Aaron, the priest, will light the altar and lay wood on the fire. Then Aaron's sons, the priest, will arrange the pieces, the head and the fat on the wood that is on the altar fire. But the animal's insides and lower legs must be washed with water. The priest will then completely burn all of it on the altar as an entirely burned offering, a food gift of soothing smell to the Lord. This is the word of God for us, the people of God. Growing up, uh, my dad was an optometrist. And so that means that if you belong to the Meyer household, you always practiced good ocular health and you went in for routine exams with my father. I was not a big fan of this particular practice uh, of our family. However, I will say that my favorite part of every single eye exam was when we got to play with the ferometer. Anyone know what a ferometer is? Anybody ever worn one of these on your face before? Yeah. What happens, right? What questions do they ask you, right? They put it on you and they say, that's right. One or two? Which one's clearer? Now, two or three? Three or four? So they keep going and going and going and getting increasingly clearer. Now, why I love this part of the exam so much is because I was such a lovely child. I would mess with my dad, and as they were getting clearer, I'd be like, worse, worse. Worse, he's over there freaking out. What's going on? Worse, Dad, it's gone black. What have you done to my eyes? 
So suffice to say, my dad doesn't give me eye exams anymore. I have to find that on my own, like a regular person. But I've thought about this experience a lot growing up. And in particular, I've thought a lot about it as I've learned as a pastor how to study and how to interpret Scripture. And the reason for which is because, friends, this is actually how we were always supposed to read the Bible. This is always how we were supposed to interpret and understand and explain the Bible. Like a good uh, device at an eye doctor, the Bible was supposed to be read, it's supposed to be interpreted in such a way whereby with the turning of every page, the turning of every book, much like the turning of every lens, the turning of every chapter, you are getting an increasingly clearer, richer, more accurate picture of who God is and what God is like. Read in this way, sure. In the early parts of the Bible, in the early books of the Bible, yeah, you were going to get a really incomplete, sometimes a raw picture as to who God is. But then by the time you got to the Gospels, by the time Jesus shows up, you're getting the clearest, most accurate picture, accurate insight into who God is and what God's like. And friends, don't just take it from me. Paul talks this way. Paul speaks this way when he talks about spiritual seeing, the way in which we see ourselves, the way in which we see God, the way in which we understand God. He says, now we see things imperfectly, like puzzling reflections in a mirror. In another translation, he says, now we see through a glass, through a lens, dimly. Love that. But then, on the day when we come face to face, we will see with perfect clarity. We'll see God in all of God's beauty and richness. Now, why all of that is so, so, so important, why that's so important, is because of books like Leviticus. Okay, safe space, okay, safe space. We can be an honest place here. How many of you have ever said, you know what, this year's gonna be different. This year I'm finally gonna read the Bible. I'm finally gonna do it. I'm gonna go cover to cover. I'm gonna get a nice little reading plan. I'm gonna have a nice little checklist laminated so I can sort of check myself off. And you were cruising. You started the year off and you were cruising. You were crushing all the Bible readings. You were doing all the things you are supposed to be doing. And then what happened when you got to Leviticus? After about the 10th reference to circumcision, you're like, I'm not having fun anymore. (laughs) And so often the reason for which is because of the expectations we were taught to have whenever you approach the scriptures. So often it's because of how we were taught to read this book. Sometimes you will encounter Christians, you'll encounter churches, you'll encounter pastors who teach you that you are supposed to read the Bible not as a gradual revelation into who God is, but as fixed revelation. And so that means that every time you crack open that book and you find stories that talk about God, that share commandments that God has given, you are to read them literally, you are to apply them literally to your life, you are to interpret them literally for the world, for your neighbor, for yourself, for everyone around you. And so it's not very shocking that most of us, by the time we get to Leviticus 1, we can't even make it out of the first chapter before we are wildly confused. If you read Leviticus 1, 
the passage that Paul just read a couple moments ago, if you read that in a very literal way, you read this in a very fixed way that this is who God is and this is what God wants from us, then you are led to believe that there was actually a time and place, there was a time in history when this is how you made God happy. This is how you found favor with God. This is how you thanked God and you worshiped God. This is what God needed from you. And so you read these stories and you begin to end up with a God that demands such barbaric and violent acts in order to make God happy. I hope you guys brought your fatted calves this morning. Okay? I didn't see any uh, trailer, uh, farm trailers pull in. Big dogs will do too, though. So if you guys just want to run home real quick, we can um, make God happy here today. Exactly. What is going on? Now, what's fascinating is some Christians will come along. They'll say, yeah, yeah, slow down, Kyle, slow down. Like, we get it. That's weird. That's a weird story. It's a strange story. It doesn't make a whole lot of sense. But what you've got to understand is this is the old way. They'll use this language. They'll say, this is the old covenant. This is what God used to need. God used to demand this kind of stuff. But God doesn't need that stuff anymore. Which, I don't know about you, but that doesn't make it any better. So there was a time and place where God did need that? Like, I don't understand. My new practice after worship is I go to Chipotle. I go to Chipotle on the way home, and I participate in a lovely collection of endless calories and carbs with a huge dollop of guacamole on top. If you were to tell me that the guy who fixes my burrito used to warm up the tortilla by sitting on it, I don't care how much he's changed. I don't care how much he has grown. I don't care how much he has sort of seen the error of his ways. I'm going to Kidoba for the rest of my life. How you approach these stories matters. The expectations you carry to them matters. Because, friends, if you're not careful, what you'll begin to find is that read in a certain way, read and interpreted in a certain way, will really seriously harm or you'll impede your ability to even trust this God. Again, read in a certain way, it could cause you to walk away and go, I don't necessarily know if I want to follow that God. I don't find a lot of good news in any of that. And so, friends, this is why, going back to the tool that I mentioned earlier, this is why understanding and reading and interpreting Scripture in this way is so important because, remember, Leviticus is early in this spectrum. Leviticus is the third book of the Bible. Leviticus, Exodus, or Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus. It is super early in the story. And so what that means is we have a really, really raw, incomplete picture as to who God is and what God's like so far. And so when you stumble into passages like these, and Leviticus is not the only one. This is why we said this is kind of like a sermon series on making sense of the Old Testament writ large. When you come into passages like this where God seems so barbaric and seems so violent, what you need to understand is that this is not the destination. This was a step toward the destination. This was not the plans, the ultimate desire God had for us. This was a step toward that. So some of you are like, okay, Kyle, I'll bite 
what was the destination? Like, what in the world, what in that whole passage uh, suggests something good God was moving us toward? And you find it in verse 1. In verse 1, the most important, we find the most important verses, I would argue, in the entire uh, whole chapter. Uh, important words, rather. The four most important words in the entire chapter come in verse 1, and it says this. Then the Lord called to Moses and said to him, here it is, from the meeting tent. Now, pause for a moment. So in 2023, sometimes this gets lost in translation. During Levitical times, you never heard of a God who went camping with you. There was no such thing as a God who would ever get that close to you. Whoever wanted to be and walk that near to you. During Levitical times, where did, where did gods inhabit? They were in the skies. They were in the heavens. They were in the heavenly palaces, like the one you see in the Disney movie Hercules. Uh, we went on a Disney vacation recently, uh, and we came home, and I wanted to show my kids some of the uh, ones they hadn't seen. They said, this is the old Disney, which I was like, <gasps> And so I made them sit through it. Anyway, they watch this, and then this whole scene unfails. And what happens? What mount is this? Mount what? Disney fans? Olympus. Well done. And so my kids are watching this. And like, oh, my gosh, like, that's so beautiful. I want to go there. And so all of you Disney fans out there, how do you respond to a comment like that? You say, well, you can find your way. You can go the distance. To which they turned it off and didn't want to watch anymore. Anyways, this is what we think about, though. This is where we locate God's home, God's habitat. God's not with us, is he? Well, we go back one book and we find this is actually all part of the design. God says to Moses, he's giving Moses instructions on kind of how they're going to set up camp. And he says to Moses, talking about they, they is the, like the priests, the religious leaders. He says, I want you to tell them they ought to make me a sanctuary so that I can be present among them. God wants to be with us. Not above us. Not apart from us. Truly with us. And guess what? When you keep reading, when you keep going throughout the course of the scriptures, you find that God just continuously makes more and more steps this direction. Fast forward 500 years to 1 Samuel chapter 15. Samuel's sort of doing this, uh, he's doing this wrestling, he's doing this grappling, he's starting to learn more about God, he's starting to see more of the heart and the character of God. And so he says this, does the Lord want entirely burnt offerings and sacrifices as much as obedience to the Lord? Listen to this, obeying is far better than sacrificing. Paying attention to who God is and what God's doing, what God's saying is far better than having the correct fat versus protein sort of ratio on your sacrifice or offering plate that day. He's learning that there's actually more to this relationship. The author of Micah finding the same thing. Micah's wrestling. He's starting to see more of God. He says, Gosh, I don't actually know. What does the Lord require of you? I used to think it was all these laws, all these regulations, all these rules that I was supposed to be perfectly abiding by. That's how I made God happy with me. But now it seems that at the core, God wants me to be someone who acts justly, who 
loves mercy and walks humbly with him. And so from Leviticus, we're making a step and then another step until we get to John chapter 1, whereby we reach the destination. God's desire to be one with you, to be close to you, to be an active part of your everyday life grows so strong that this God can do no other than become one of you. And so let's put it all together. Friends, whenever you encounter passages like this, again, Leviticus is not the only one, but when you encounter passages like these, we need to understand that this was not the destination. This was not the, the ultimate plan. This was not the final schematic as to what God wanted for a life with us. Instead, the way I read Leviticus 1 is it was God's earliest attempts to move a sometimes barbaric civilization, a sometimes archaic civilization, it was God's earliest attempts to move us away from a relationship built on fear, built on shame, built on inadequacy. You never were enough. You never did enough. You can never hold perfectly all the commands and rules that I set for you. God was inching, albeit slowly, moving us away from a relationship built on rules and regulations and legalism and death and, and, and violence so as to move us toward a relationship built on intimacy, a relationship built on honesty, a relationship whereby you could show up to this God and you can show your imperfections and you weren't met with hatred, but you were met with forgiveness, you were met with compassion, and there's quite literally nothing you could do to ever make this God depart from your presence. That's what's happening in Leviticus 1. We're inching closer to that relationship. Now, some of you are sitting there thinking, okay, so I hear that, that's fine, but like now that we know better, um, now that we know this is like not who God is, this is like the Leviticus sort of all the animal killing and whatnot, now that we know that's not who God is, now that we know that's not the way that God wants us to sort of operate or abide by with him, why keep it in the Bible? Why still talk about it? Why still read it? Heck, why do an entire sermon series on it, Pastor Kyle? We're very curious about this. I'm so glad you asked those questions. Because friends, the answer is part of the reason why books like Leviticus are so very, very important is because part of their purpose is they serve as a word of warning serve as a word, a strong word of caution to not return to the old ways of doing things. Now, some of you are confused. You're like, I don't actually have that desire. Like, I don't actually have any desire to kill anything or, you know, burn anything. Like, I actually don't feel that. That's fine. That's not what I'm talking about. What I am talking about is we are several thousand years removed from this story and still, still, I'm willing to bet that every single one of us at one point or another, that temptation, that, te that tendency rises up within you 
whereby you feel like you got to do something to earn God's affection. I'm not doing enough. I got to do more. Like I got to, I got to keep good standing with God. I got to, I got to make sure I'm doing more. I got to make sure that I'm accomplishing more. I got to make sure that I'm holding up my end of the bargain. And you, you consistently feel like it's your responsibility to summon God's affection and to summon God's attention. I don't care who you are. It is in our nature to almost default to this setting with God. Or maybe you don't. I know for a fact I definitely do. One of the occupational hazards of this job, one of the hardest parts of this job, is to not get up week in and week out, day after day, and to think that what God wants from me is to do things for Onto this temptation all the time, whereby I think it's my job. I gotta, I gotta write sermons for him. I gotta study the Bible for him. I gotta pray for him. I gotta, I gotta do acts of service and acts in the uh, community uh, for him. I'll never forget this. About five years into ministry, I had my very first experience with burnout. And I'll close here. Banjin, come on up. I had my first experience with burnout. Some of you have had this experience before. Maybe you've had this in your job. Maybe you've had this in parenting, especially if you're parenting young, young ones. Maybe you've felt uh, burnout in a relationship. And some of you know the unique experience of experiencing what we might call spiritual burnout. And if you have, you know that the reason that you experience burnout is because you have gotten into a habit with God whereby you think that the way in which you stay connected to God, the way in which you stay alive in your faith, the way in which you stay connected to Jesus is by always doing things for God. And so you're constantly looking for more things to do to sort of keep up your status with God. And at least in my experience, not only did that completely exhaust me, But if I'm being really honest, it also led me to this place where I experienced deep, deep bitterness and resentment. I was angry at this God because it just felt like I had enough people needing me to do something, needing something from me. And yet again, here comes another person in my life who needs me to do something for them. I got to read the Bible for them. I got to pray for them. I got to go to church for them. I got to do all these spiritual and faith things for them. And so I don't know what to do. In my experience, I was lost, had no idea what to do, and so I went and saw my pastor. It's important for you to know that even your pastor has a pastor. So I went and saw my pastor, and I explained the situation to him. I said, I don't really know what's going on. Like, I'm five years into this thing, hoping to do this for about 40, and so Something's got to give because I can't, I either can't do this job anymore or I have to do it wildly differently. He listened to me for about five minutes and retired pastor, he himself had been doing it for, you know, 45 years and he goes, I think I found the answer. I was like, dear God, that was fast. Okay, say more. Tell me now, please. He goes, I want you to grab that Bible over there and I want you to turn to John chapter 15. You have me read out loud this verse. This is Jesus speaking. 
I don't call you servants any longer because servants don't know what their master is doing. Instead, I call you friends because everything I've heard from my father, I've made known to you. He said, Kyle, I'm not trying to, you know, beat up on you. It happens to all of us, but you just forgot. You forgot that faith is not something you do for God. It is something you do with God. And so maybe that's you today. Or maybe you've felt that before. Maybe sometimes you struggle to come to places like this or you struggle to maintain your commitment to church or to spiritual disciplines or to your faith life. And the reason for which is because you just feel like God is just yet another person in your life who needs you to do something for him. And here's the good news. God don't need none of your stuff. He don't need a bucket of all your prayers. He doesn't need you to sort of amass this huge pile of wonderful, beautiful, Christian-like things that you have done that week. I don't need none of that. He just needs you. And so if that's you, friends, or when you find yourself caught up in that temptation, A, you're not alone. Again, that's me. If you find yourself and you get caught up in that, I want to challenge you and I want to ask you to consider taking this question as you leave here today. Take it with you into your spiritual life. Take it with you into your faith life. I want you to take this question with you and I want you to start asking this question of anything and everything that you do that you deem spiritual. So before you come to church next week, before you read your Bible, before you go and do something nice for someone else, I want you to ask this question, am I doing this for God? Or am I doing this with God? And if I've not convinced you of the importance of this question, I'll just tell you this. These two questions will lead you on two wildly different paths for your life. If you leave here today and you're like, you know what, I'm, I'm fine. Like, I can live for God. I can do things for God. Like, I understand what Kyle's point is, but like, I'm fine. I can do this. Uh, I can sort of, I, I enjoy doing things for God and doing all the right things and keeping all the lists of what God doesn't want me to do versus what he does want me to do. If you live that life, I can almost guarantee you, you're going to wind up in a place over here where one of two things is going to happen to you. On the one hand, you're going to find yourself so afraid of God, so anxious, so depressed and discouraged because you found out firsthand you can never, ever do enough. If you don't suffer from that, then that means that you diverted to the other option, which is uh, you take so much pride in all the things that you've done for God that you've become the most egotistical, proud, arrogant, self-righteous person in the room. Congratulations. You are now keeping company with the people who would rather execute Jesus than listen to him. But you see, a, a life with God, a life with God uh, frees you up to be imperfect. It frees you up to make mistakes. It frees you up to be a work in progress. 
it frees you up to be honest with God when you've wandered or when you haven't done what you were supposed to do or you weren't the person you were supposed to be. It gives you the freedom to be a child in your father's arms who in those moments doesn't need to be judged or shamed or screamed at, but needs to be loved and healed into being someone new. And so for the rest of my life, I'm gonna fight, scratch and claw to ask that question. What's it gonna be for you? In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, we pray. All God's children said, amen. Thank you for listening to The Peak Podcast. Make sure you subscribe wherever podcasts can be found. For more information on how to get connected with our church, please visit us at thepeakchurch.org.